we'll tie into the message here this morning too. I want you to turn into your Bibles to Romans 5, Romans 5, verse 12 through 15 this morning. We're taking just a pause for today out of Ephesians. We'll pick up back in Ephesians 5 next, uh, next Sunday. I wanted just a little more time to dive into that text, but I was also very impressed towards just preaching a gospel message this morning. Uh, why, I don't know. I'll just leave that in the Lord's hands and just uh, do what I believe is necessary. Um, but this particular text and the message I'm going to bring to us, I think, is um, very needed for us to understand and looking at really the core of what the gospel is. And so I've titled the message, The Gospel, Plain and Simple. The Gospel, Plain and Simple. And uh, we could go to many different texts of Scripture that will give us the gospel, plain and simple. Uh, but I want to describe to you and lay out a, just three main points that regard the gospel and really the overall uh, structure of what has been done for us in Christ. And so let's look at Romans 5 and verse 12 through 15 for a moment. We even talked a little bit about this in Sunday school, and so I, I about said, Bob, quit stealing the sermon this morning because we, we were getting into it. Uh, but um, we're, we're, we're thankful for how the Lord works that out anyway. Uh, Romans 5, verse 12 through verse 15 for a moment. Notice this morning, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Let's read verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. When it comes to salvation, the salvation of sinners, we think, what is it that transpires in that reality? What it is to be saved? Why do they need to be saved to begin with? And once a person is saved, what is it that makes them saved? What has happened in a person in which they, in a person who professes that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of them. Now, as you look at the doctrine of salvation in the Scriptures, it is both simple but at the same time profound. It is both shallow and deep. It is both uh, understandable and yet beyond comprehension. You say, well, how's that work? Well, that's what you call a paradox. God has given us this in which we see in the Scriptures that, that, this, that salvation is a deep yet uh, understandable truth and reality. And when we truly contemplate the essence of salvation, as Christians, we can really only rejoice and just wonder in awe of what God has done for us. We rejoice in it. We wonder at it. We, 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 we truly know that grace is amazing. And as Sister Nancy uh, sung just a moment ago, it ought to always be amazing to us. We ought never to lose our amazement with what grace is and what God has done for us. Now, our text takes place in one of the greatest books de detailing the work of salvation. Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome, explaining really the depths of the gospel of Christ, 
Many have called this the gospel according to Paul because it is so rich and deep as to what the gospel is and what God has done for us. You see, through the scriptures, God reveals uh, to us who we are. He reveals to us our sin nature. He reveals to us in His love what He's done for us in Christ. He reveals to us uh, who we are in Christ. So much comes from this. We look at verse 8 and what Paul said just a moment ago earlier in this text. He says, But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's another one of those texts that just summarizes the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. For us, And he shows us that only by faith may we have this salvation. Now Paul ties all of these truths together, showing us what's happened to man and what happens uh, as a result of Christ. And really, the focus I want to give you this morning is about the spiritual transfers that happen in salvation. The spiritual transfer. Now, this is what, was, what would be known as the doctrine of imputation. Anybody heard of that big, scary word? Doctrine of imputation. Imputation in, in simple terms is this. It's the act of reckoning a legal debit or credit to an account. It's a transfer. It's an accounting of something specific. And when we look at Christianity as a whole, there are three doctrinal areas of imputation we find. Original sin, atonement, and justification. Justification by faith. And in these three areas, we see three spiritual transfers that make the gospel very plain and simple to us. And I want to point them out to us here today. Number one in our notes, I want you to see the truth and reality of Adam's sin transferred to man. Adam's sin transferred to man. That's the first transfer. That's the first uh, reality we must understand when it comes to the gospel. Now, we mention the gospel often, and the gospel simply means good news, right? What's the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, in order to know what good news is, you first must have what? The bad news. Because good news isn't good news unless there was for something bad that we needed good from, right? And so here's what we see with this in Adam's sin being transferred to man. First aspect here is that Adam's transgression passed depravity to humanity. Adam's transgression... His sin in the very beginning, past depravity, our own sinfulness and our own sinful nature to humanity. Now we see this in verse 12. Notice what Paul says here. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. I want us to point out a couple things about this. What one man is in view here that Paul is talking about? What, who is this one man through which sin entered into the world and passed upon all of humanity? Well, that one man is Adam. It surprised you how many people don't even know that that's the first man ever created. Sometimes I watch these videos of people, they go into random stores like Walmart or Target, and they'll say, well, I got this gift card, you just answer me three Bible questions, and it'll, you know, ask somebody these questions. And one of the questions was, who is the first man ever created? This guy said Jesus. And I'm like, good grief, we're, we're, people need to know these sorts of things. The first man ever created was Adam. And Adam was created in a perfect and innocent state in the sense that he had no sin. He had not fallen. He was, he was in a state of innocence. 
And what you'll find is that through this passage, Paul contrasts the work of Adam and the work of Christ. Now, this takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. You go read Genesis 1 through 3. Friend, the Garden of Eden was a glorious paradise. One in which Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, lived in a state of innocence and they communed with God. Can you imagine such a place and such an experience? No such thing as sin. No such thing as death yet. No such thing as corruption. No such thing as decaying. No such thing of any of the things that we face. And Adam, he had an unbroken fellowship with his creator. And this was his privilege that goes beyond our comprehension. He was entrusted by God to care for the garden and and to fill creation with humanity. But then that dreadful day came when Satan tempted Eve and she gave in. She involved Adam and he gave in. And as the man, he was accountable for his home, that being his wife. She's under the umbrella of his headship. But Adam was not only accountable for his home, his wife, he was also accountable for humanity as the first man. The first man. And though he tried to blame the woman, God comes in the garden and says, why'd you do this? Well, the woman you gave me made me do this. Goes to Eve and says, well, the snake made me do this, and so on and so forth. But the reality is the blame game doesn't work with God. You don't get to blame sin on someone else. You're accountable for your own sin. And so though Adam, through Adam, as our first parent, sin has come into the world, and it did not only affect him and Eve, it affected all of his offspring, which is the whole of humanity. And thus we find in verse 12, two little words, all sinned, all sinned. Now Paul previously made that clear in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What you find is that Adam's sin is imputed, it is transferred to all of humanity, which gave humanity a nature in which they commit their own sins against their holy creator. Friend, you and I sin ourselves. We commit our own sins daily, perpetually, all the time. The one thing we know and we're good at is sin. And every sin we commit is against God. You see, it's woven into the very nature of our being. David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's in our DNA, friend. The very, from the very moment of conception, the nature of sin rests within humanity. You know, we look at the world and think, Why do people sin from the beginning of, to the end of their life? Because from the beginning to the end of their life, that's their nature. You don't have to teach them how to sin. They just do it. Just like you don't have to teach a dog how to bark. He just does it. Why? It's his nature. You don't have to teach a cat how to meow. You don't have to uh, teach teach a a rooster how to crow. You don't have to teach animals how to act the way they act, right? I had a husky one one time. Me me and Bethany both did after we first got married. And that husky, you know, if you know huskies, they know how to howl. I mean, they're howlers. I didn't have to teach him how to howl. I didn't have to teach him how to act foolish and run around the house and destroy things, right? I didn't have to teach him any of those things. It's in his nature to do that. And the same is true with humanity. 
Now understand this, while not all people are as sinful as they could be, they nonetheless are exceedingly sinful. None of us are as sinful as we could be, and that's by mercy alone. But understand, all of mankind is exceedingly sinful in a variety of ways, and they are this perpetually. Now, go with me backwards in Romans. We're going to look at a couple of texts throughout the book of Romans that communicate these gospel truths. I want you to look at Romans 3, verse 9 through 18. This is the description. I mean, a lot of people think, well, sin, I know that's a word, it means bad, probably not that bad, right? But look at what God says about sin, what it's done to us and what we do because of it. In verse 9, Paul says, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, now listen to this, none is righteous. No, not, not one. You ponder that. A lot of us, that, that's what we like to do. We like to think we're righteous. We like to think we're better than we actually are. But, but God says, nah, not one is righteous. Notice what verse 11 says. No one understands, no one seeks for God. You go back to the Garden of, that, Garden of Eden, Adam and in, after, after Adam and Eve. Good grief, I'm getting my tongue tied this morning. Pray for me. I said M&M's. Maybe I'm wanting chocolate or something. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. After they sinned, what did they do when God came to the garden? Did they go, oh, Lord, we took of the fruit. No, they hid themselves. They hid themselves from their creator, from their God. That's what man does because of his sin. He runs the other direction. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friend, that that describes natural man. It's a fearful description of man before a holy God. It describes what man's nature causes him to do against God. This is called depravity, friend, and it is damning to us. The sin of Adam imputed, counted towards all mankind, making him a sinner that is guilty before the Almighty. It's easy to see how this has come upon us from the text. Letter B this morning, notice also that Adam's transgression not only passed depravity to humanity, what comes with sin and depravity death. Adam's transgression passed death to humanity. You know, death is one of the most painful things we experience. Even though you're not the one dying, it's still painful for you because you're losing someone who is dying. Death is a tragedy. Death is is a trial. Death death is, is something that humanity fears. You see, with the transfer of sin comes the transfer of death. This is the reason people die. They are a package deal. You understand, there is no sin without death and no death without sin. And what did God tell Adam would be the result of him sinning against him by taking of that forbidden fruit? He said to him, in the day that you take of it, you will surely what? Die. He said, you'll die. You know, Adam really had no clue what that was all about. I don't think he had a concept of what death really was. He would soon learn exactly what death was and how grave it was that brought upon it, what it, what it brought, came upon him. He'd understand it in a deeper way. 
But here's what we learn from Scripture is that death, death has come in a threefold way. Not just physically. We'll get to that in a moment. But you understand that Adam's sin brought spiritual death to humanity. Spiritual death became our nature. You remember what Paul told the Ephesians about their past state before becoming Christians. He said, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He doesn't say you're half dead. He didn't say you were mostly dead. He says, you were dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. You see, the spiritually dead state of man keeps him bound in sin, making him unable to do spiritual good before God. He is empty of spiritual life. What he needs is a spiritual resurrection, which is what the gospel does for us through the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but you have physical death. Physical death enters humanity, causing all mankind to die, and their body returns to the dust. Here's what God told Adam. Adam... You are dust, and to dust you shall return. You remember how God created Adam? He formed him of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. We're made of dirt. That's what we are. We're nothing without God. And here's what, here's what we find is that, that we, upon death, return to the dirt, right? This is what most people think of when we speak of death. It is a physical death. And Adam would see the reality of this very soon. One, when he tried to cover himself with fig leaves and that wouldn't work, what did God do? God had to do what? Give him coat skins of an animal. How do you get coat skins of an animal? You have to kill it. Adam saw firsthand what death really was. That animal that had blood pumping through its veins and through its its body was killed, put to death. It no longer lived. He would also experience it not long later with the death of his son. His own son killed his other brother, Abel. He understood what death was there in a human standpoint. You understand that the Adam, Adam was made to live forever, but now with sin, a death blow has come to humanity. And from the day he sinned against God, his body began the process of dying just like everybody else in this world. No matter how old you are, you're in the process of dying. From the time you're born, you're just going to grow up, and you're going to get old, and you're going to die. That's life. Sometimes it's a little depressing, isn't it? But that's what sin brought. Sin brought that. Now, if this was all there was to life, and, and we just grow old, we go through this world, and then we die, and there's nothing else, yeah, that would be depressing. But, Christian, we have hope. We have assurance. We have eternal life in Christ, and I'll get to that in a moment. But you look at how death has reigned. Paul says in verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses and has continued to reign throughout all of humanity. You go read the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5. You're going to find all these people that lived hundreds of years, hundreds of years, and after every one of them except one who was an exception, Enoch, you'll find those three words, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Beyond just these two forms of death, there's another form of death, and this is the true death that ought to be feared more than any, and that is eternal death. Eternal death. You understand that eternal death is the receiving of the full weight of God's wrath beyond the grave. We often refer to hell and then further in the future the lake of fire as the wrath of God, and that's what they are. And here's the reality. There is coming a final judgment day in which every person who has ever lived will be held accountable for every sin they have ever committed. There is not one 
sin that goes without justice. Not one. Doesn't matter if you know about it, nobody else knows about it. Doesn't matter if you think it's small or if you think it's big. Not one escapes God's justice. And ultimately, the final end of justice for sin is eternal death. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and un- ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath, friend, is no light matter. Yet men today, they make jokes about hell and think of it lightly. But I can tell you right now, every person in hell right now is not joking about it. There is no joking in hell. The weight of their sin is under holy wrath and they are getting what they deserve and they know they deserve every ounce of it. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and it is what comes upon all sinners. You know, we speak of this judgment and man tends to think that it's too severe or too strict. Well, the problem with that is that man just doesn't know who God is and who they are. Man was created by God from the dust, given life by God's power, and yet Adam and all of us turned against that Creator who is infinitely holy and righteous, and we perpetually live in our sinfulness. R.C. Sproul rightly put it this way, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. You know why we fail to see how severe, while the, while the, why the severity of sin and judgment really is the way it is? Because we fail to see the magnitude of God's holiness. You see, the transfer of Adam's sin to mankind has brought damnation upon all men. Man is imputed with this depravity and this death, and he cannot escape it. There is no hope for him in and of himself. Which brings us to the good news of the gospel, right? We want the good news. Now, here's what I want you to see, number two, this transfer. The first transfer is Adam's sin to humanity. But the second transfer is man's sin transferred to Christ. I want to explain that because this is the most glorious thing in all of the scriptures. I want you to understand that Christ took sin upon himself in death. Christ took sin upon himself in death. Now, how could any man ever be relieved of such an immense weight of guilt? How could the unfathomable fullness of God's wrath upon sin ever be appeased? Is it possible for man to be changed or freed from such a condition? Scriptures tell us of this question in Job, Job 15, 14. What is man that he can be pure or, who, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? That's a question. The answer is that God has applied a way only through a substitute taking the place of sinful man. And friend, this is the purpose of the atonement of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross. Many in our world, they know about Jesus dying on the cross, but they have no clue what it really means. What's it mean that he died on the cross? How does does a man dying on a cross save a multitude of sinners? How how does that work? You know, there's a reason the scripture says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe, right? How does that work? They don't understand. 
What we learn from the scriptures and what we know of the atonement is that Christ, in his death, took the place of sinful men who deserve the wrath of God. This was God's plan to save sinners from the very beginning. God's wrath has to be satisfied. There's no escaping this. Justice on sin has to be executed. And God, in his infinite grace and mercy and love, planned from the beginning that there would be an atonement, a substitute who would take the place of sinful people. And that substitute would be none other than his eternal son. His eternal son, God. God the son. God the son, Jesus. He would be born into this world to live sinlessly and to be perfect. He would be the substitute, the only one qualified to take our sin upon himself. There's not any other man or woman in all of history that could ever qualify for such a thing. Because we're guilty by our own nature. But Jesus was not. It was said near his birth to Joseph in Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The entire purpose of Jesus coming into the world is to save his people from their sins. It wasn't to try to just accomplish some good things here and there. It wasn't just to heal the blind or the lame or upset the religious crowd of his day. He came for the purpose of atonement. He came for the purpose of dying for sinners to save his people. He came to do it willingly out of love for his people. And here's how we see the transfer of our sin upon the sinless one in death. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm going to read the first part of this verse. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Let's break this down for a moment. Who is the he here? It is God the Father. Who is the him? God the Son, Christ Jesus. And what has he done? He has made Jesus to take sin upon himself. Not that he became a sinner. Do not mistake this. Not that he became a sinner, but that the weight of sin's penalty for his people was upon him. It was placed upon him when Jesus was there on the cross dying in agony and bloodshed. And here is why he's the only one who could be such a substitute. It is because of these three words. He is the man who knew no sin. He knew no sin. What does it mean that he knew no sin? It means Jesus in his earthly life from the time of his birth to the time of his death had never committed any form of sin whatsoever. Sin was foreign to him. He never experienced it. Never experienced a moment of committing sin. And because he alone is sinless, he took the place of the sinful in his death on the cross. That is what it means to be substitute. A substitute. He is a substitute for us. 1 Peter 2, 24, he rightly puts it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Do you see what's taking place here? He bore whose sins? Not his own. But ours, 
Now, to make this point more clearly, I want you to turn in your Old Testament to Isaiah 53. Probably the most detailed and explicit passage of what Jesus endured on the cross that day. The suffering servant. But I want us to take note of some things as we read this portion of the text. Isaiah 53. Look with me, if you would, at verse 3 through verse 12. This is about Jesus. Understand, he is in view. Prophesied of long before he ever came into the world and actually did this. He was despised and rejected by by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and while he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out, cut, cut out of, off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see the offspring, his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The, Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgression, transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's so much to take in there, no time to go through it all. But I do want to point out something to you as you come through some of these verses. You look at verse 4. He has borne whose griefs? He has borne whose sorrows? In verse 5, he was pierced for whose transgressions? He was crushed for whose iniquities? Upon him was the chastisement that brought who peace? Us. With his wounds, we are healed. We are healed. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of who? Us all. Verse 8, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 10, he, was, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, he will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. Do you see the substitutionary language through this text? 
Christ is not dying for his iniquities and his sorrows and his guilt and his sins and his transgressions. He's dying for mine. He's dying for mine because mine have been placed on him on the cross. He is taking the sins of Joseph Allen who would live nearly 2,000 years in the future. And you, believer, can put your name there. That he bore your sins. Yours. In Christ's death, he has done what we could never do. Friend, do you understand that he did not die to potentially save sinners, but to actually save them? He did not die just to make it possible so that maybe a few here or there would be saved. He died guaranteeing he would save his people. His death is a real and definite atonement. How glorious is this sacrifice? John Newton rightly said, the author of Amazing Grace we sung earlier, may we sit at the foot of the cross and there learn what sin has done, what justice has done, and what love has done. At the cross, we see the transfer of what took place for us. Letter B, notice also that Christ, Christ has triumphed over death by resurrection. I must point this out because if Christ, having received the transfer of sin upon himself in death, what about the problem of death itself, right? Didn't death come with sin? Yes. Hasn't death conquered everyone in humanity? Yes. Sin brought death, and death also must also be overcome. So if death is not overcome, then death is still a victor over us, and there can't be true hope about death. Praise God today, you who hear, that Christ has indeed overcome death. He not only overcame sin and paid for it, he also overcame death. You see, Jesus' cold, lifeless, battered body laid in the borrowed tomb for three days. And during those three days, his followers, his disciples, thought all was hopeless. They didn't see the big picture. It didn't click with them just yet. But then the third day came. After his substitutionary sacrifice in which Christ rose from the dead. Triumphing over that great foe. And you remember the words of the angels. The angel to the women who came to the tomb that resurrection morning. The stone was rolled away. And they're startled by this angel. He gives them this wonderful news and says he's not here. What do you mean he's not here? He's not here. Why? He's risen. He's risen. He tells them, come. See the place where he lay. You go into that tomb and you realize it's empty. He's not there. He's not there. He was gone even before the stone was rolled away. He didn't need the stone to roll away but just to let him out. You understand? He just walked out. He's God. He's the infinite Son of God. And what glorious words these were to hear, both to them and to us. Remember what Paul said in defense of the resurrection of Christ? 1 Corinthians 15, 20 said, But in fact, Christ has, raised, has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And I love that he says, in fact, Christ has risen. You understand that Christ's resurrection is a fact of history. That even the greatest God-hating skeptics cannot refute historically. Scripture and God the Spirit testify that Christ is risen. 
And church, I want you to understand by us gathering here today to worship, we testify every Lord's day that Jesus is risen. People drive by, they see all these cars in the parking lot. Why are those people going there? Because we have a risen Savior that we worship. He's reigning right now and he's going to come again someday. He's not dead. He's alive, friend. And that is the truth of the gospel that Christ has come to bring life to those who were dead in sin. Because a dead Savior is no Savior at all. This is why Christ alone is the Savior. Christ overcame the grave, that dreadful companion of sin. By doing so, he has gained the victory. He has gained the victory over death. The problem of death has been conquered by Jesus, and he holds absolute authority over all of it. I love how how this passage describes the encounter with John the Apostle when Jesus comes to him after the resurrection in his giving of the revelation. This is John the Apostle writing in Revelation 1. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. The living one. Look look what else he says. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, as the one who has conquered the grave, he has ascended into heaven in which he has all power and all authority. He reigns sovereignly over this world, over the universe, and he is the savior of his people. Do you see, do you see the gospel here, plain and simple, who we are, what Christ has done for us? But this is not the end. The transfer of Adam's sin to man and man's sin upon Christ is clear Those two transfers are needed. They are essential. But then there's the last one that is also required. Number three, that is Christ's righteousness transferred to man. Christ's righteousness transferred to man. here's, Here's the point. Righteousness is imputed to believers by faith. Righteousness is imputed to believers by faith. Now, as we've already seen, there is no righteousness in man. None. Yet only righteousness sets us right with God, right? The only one righteous is God. Clearly manifested in the life of God the Son, Jesus, who is righteous. There is no hint of sin with Him. What man needs is righteousness equal to that of Christ. Is it even possible to have such a thing? This is the marvelous truth of imputation, of this transfer. And we see the full picture in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I quoted you half the verse earlier. I want you to see the whole thing now. He says, For our sake he made him, that's being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. What's the purpose of this? Here's the purpose. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the we. Who's the we referred to? Us who believe. Believers. We, the the sinfully depraved, dead, rebellious, wretches. We become the righteousness of God in Christ. Christian, I will forever wonder in amazement that Christ's righteousness has become my own. I'll never be able to fathom this. His righteousness imputed, counted unto my account 
before God. What an immeasurable mercy he's given. Now, how is it that this righteousness comes to us? It's accounted to us. It is only through faith in Christ as our substitution. Faith, friends. Faith. Through faith, the righteousness of Christ is imputed and accounted to our spiritual account while our unrighteousness is removed and forgiven before God. We're in Romans again. Romans 3. Look with me at these couple passages I want you to see briefly. <coughs> Romans 3, 21 through 25 for a moment. Notice what he says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for who? All who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received, how? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. Do you see what this is implying and telling us? The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus to all who believe. To those who believe. Now, I understand. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, what your ethnicity is. The righteousness of this this gift of righteousness is available for all who believe. The stipulation is those who believe. That means that not everybody has the righteousness of Christ. It's those who believe. Only those who believe. Now we see this example in a man named Abraham. God made Abraham a promise that was founded upon Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. We read in the first book of the Bible in Genesis 15, 6, He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Belief, that's faith. And then Paul further expounds this wonderful truth in Romans 4. Look at one chapter over. Verse 1 through 8. Let me read this to you. We're almost done. Hang in there. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. You notice Paul's emphasis here? His emphasis is that works cannot and will not make one righteous. And yet the majority of the world believes that they can somehow get good enough to be right with God. They simply can't. Well, how is righteousness imputed to this person? Look at verse 5. His faith is counted as righteousness. You understand this is a transfer to our account. 
What exactly is faith? Well, faith is, faith in short is a committed trust and persuasion in Christ alone as your own Savior. Not just some general Savior out there, but yours. Because you're the one that's guilty. It's a personal thing. Faith, understand, is a persuasion that Christ is the Savior of you because of your sins. Forget about everybody else. It's about you, your individual sins. And as you look at faith in the Scriptures, faith itself is the gracious gift of God to His people. And with that faith, He gives you to trust in Christ. You are made righteous because of what Christ has done. Because remember, there is no righteousness in us. If we, had this, if we could just conjure up this faith ourselves, we could claim it as our own, right? It was my righteous act of believing. But Scripture plainly teaches that God grants that to the sinner because we're incapable of it to begin with. This is the point of the whole gospel is that it is all of grace. And why grace is so amazing? Because it's undeserved and it's unearned. There's nothing in and of ourselves that helps in that endeavor. As Jonathan Edwards rightly said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Friend, you need the righteousness of Christ and you will only have it by faith alone. So I ask us this morning, do you see your need? Do you see your sin? Do you see your Savior today? If you see that and you're lost and undone, Scriptures commands you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in Him. Look to Him alone for you have no hope anywhere else. Believe on Him. For those who believe on Him have eternal life. John 3.36 says, Whoever does not believe or obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let it be, and lastly, very quickly, resurrection is expected by believers by faith. You see, because Christ has conquered and conquered sin and death, the believer in Christ has been carried over to the side of victory. Because you're in Christ, you're already an overcomer of death. And though we're going to experience a physical death, understand there's coming a day in which there's a physical resurrection. And those who die in Christ, though they experience physical death, they enter immediately into the presence of Christ. Not hell, not the lake of fire, but into the presence of Jesus. See, this is the difference between the believer and those in the world who are going to be condemned for their sin in the lake of fire. The believer has been washed in the blood of Christ. And his account before God says righteous. Righteous. It's like, you know, having your bank account. You, you look at your bank account, it's in a negative, right? It's an impossible negative you can never get out of. But then Christ credits your account with an inf- infinite amount of wealth that you can't even spend all of it. That's what the infinite righteousness of Christ is. That's the status of your account. Before God's eyes, Christian, God sees righteous. Because you're in Christ. And the believer looks forward to heaven, looks forward to the resurrection day. So, if then, friend, this is the gospel, plain and simple. And these three transfers we see. Adam's sin transferred to all mankind. Depraved in our sin, 
and only have death. The sin of sinners transferred upon Christ on the cross. He takes their sin to pay for it to satisfy God's justice and rises from the dead. Christ's righteousness transferred to sinful men through faith. Those who believe are now made righteous. Righteous in Christ. This is the gospel plain and simple. I call on all of us today. If you've never done so, believe. Believe on Christ. And Christian, if you've believed on Christ and you know that you're in Christ, this is you we're talking about today, that you're righteous before Him, praise Him for it. Thank Him for it. Glorify Him for this beautiful gift of salvation. Let us stand to our feet as we prepare for a closing song. Father, we bow before you this morning. Father, we don't have the proper words to properly thank you enough for the gospel of Christ. How deep and yet how simple it is. Father, I praise you that you are the sovereign who ordained salvation for us. You set in motion, Lord, that Christ would come into the world Live the life I could never live so he could, live, so he could pay the penalty I could never pay. And give me the one thing I need to be saved, and that is your own righteousness. Lord, there may be some sitting here today, standing in this room, that do not know this righteousness. My heart aches over those who may walk out of this building rejecting and rejecting and rejecting the gospel. I pray, God, that you convict them. Open their eyes. Draw them Unto yourself, Father, that they would know the freedom of forgiveness, the joy of eternal life, and the blessing of what it is to be righteous in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.